So we're looking at uh, the first half of 1 Corinthians 12. One of the difficulties here really is that chapters 12 to 14 of this passage, of this, of this letter, hang together. And so there is a danger when you begin to break it down that you lose sight of the whole. We just have to bear in mind that it is part of a whole letter in which a lot of issues are being addressed by the apostle to this large and flourishing church at Corinth, yet one which had many problems. And so we're looking particularly at the use and abuse of spiritual gifts in this passage. And the explanation that is here for this particular Um, area that the apostle is speaking to is found in verse 1 now concerning spiritual gifts brethren I would not have you ignorant we need to note that that is the way in which he starts and what are now divided up into a number of chapters they start with this phrase now concerning chapter 7 now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me Chapter 8, now as touching things offered unto idols. And then chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. Uh, Some of the things he addresses one by one were brought to his attention by the Corinthian church asking questions. Some he'd heard of through mutual friends. And he was very exercised that they should be helped on these matters. And the particular problem here is to do with the use of spiritual gifts. If you have a King James Bible, you may note that the word gifts is in italics, meaning it is supplied by the translator rather than by the original writing. It's, it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. It's just explaining the meaning. But literally, he starts off now concerning spirituals that is gifts of the Holy Spirit and we know from how he starts the letter in chapter 1 verse 7 that they were very rich in the provision of spiritual gifts he says so that ye come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ so he's not blaming them for the gifts he's not uh, upset and suspicious about their use of these gifts, he recognizes that God has given them these gifts and that they are exercising them. So the problem for this church is not in their possession of a whole range of spiritual gifts, some natural, some supernatural, in the sense that we use those two words, because of course in a sense they were all supernatural coming from God. But the problem is not in their possession of the gifts and in their willingness to use these gifts Rather, the problem was in what motivated them and the way in which they used the gifts. It's quite clear when you read from chapters 12 through to 14 that there was a very ugly spirit behind their use of some of the gifts, especially the gift of tongues. There was pride. There was a sense of competitiveness, perhaps. And so those that had uh, this gift and other gifts were gloating, and triumphant, and probably pressurizing those who hadn't. And those who hadn't got these gifts were envious and no doubt wanting to imitate. 
Now let's just, as we think of this explanation as to why we're looking at this topic, we need to just mention a few things here. The first is, as we, we're not going to go on to chapter 14, but as it kind of culminates in chapter 14, we need to understand that the kind of meetings that the apostle is thinking about here when he thinks about the use of gifts are not the only kinds of meetings of New Testament churches. There are those in the recent past who, rediscovering these chapters, imagine that this is a mandate. What goes on, particularly in chapter 14, is a mandate for all the meetings of the church. That cannot be when we look at the New Testament and the leading it gives as to how churches functioned. For example, in Acts chapter 20, we find no use of healing or miracles or prophecy or tongues. We find Paul, that the disciples coming together to break bread and Paul preaching to them, and that for a very long time. Clearly, uh, uh, the kind of meeting here in chapters 12 through to 14 that is being envisaged is what we might call a fellowship meeting, perhaps a midweek meeting. So that's the first point we need to note. Secondly, uh, let us say unashamedly that those gifts that are particularly we would think of as miraculous, the glossalia, which is the tongues, the healings, the miracles, were, are not for today's church. They are to do with the foundation of the church and there's biblical mandate for making that rather controversial comment Uh, and I'm sorry if I tread on any toes here but I can only tell you how I see it in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 we read that God bore witness to the apostles with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will So as the apostles bore witness to Christ, God bore witness to them by giving them these signs and wonders. And he did not just give it to them, but he gave it to the churches that they planted. That was part of the witness to them. And Corinth was a particular example. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we find reference being made to the signs of an apostle. Paul says to the church there, speaking of his own ministry, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So these gifts, these miraculous gifts, are associated with the foundational ministry of the apostles, and there are only 12 apostles Uh, Anyone else claiming that title is, I'm afraid, deluded. Just a practical point. Our Pentecostal friends, of whom very many are converted and whom we love in the Lord, and who have historically been used of God in many blessed ways, but they're mistaken in thinking that the gift of tongues is for today. I'm not saying, of course, that God cannot do occasional divine things sovereignly, and he does do. But I'm saying as ministries, as regular ministries of the church, uh, they're not for today. 
And I, for one, and I think I'm by no means the only one, have not heard of one foreign mission field that Pentecostal brethren and sisters have gone to where they haven't had to go to language school. I've not heard of one people group being evangelized through the gift of tongues. Ah, says somebody, well, it's, it's this gift of tongues and angels. Chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love. Well, okay. But are all the gifts of tongues, tongues of angels? I think not. I think that should arouse suspicion in our hearts as to the validity of the claim. But having said all that by way of caveat, we need to understand that this chapter does bring abiding principles. And there are still such things as spiritual gifts given to the church. And we can look at a number even in this list in chapter 12 and see ones that apply today, like the gift of faith and like uh, speaking with wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And then when you add to that Romans chapter 12 and verses 6 through to 8, which I'm going to read, we understand that we mustn't think in some limited way of spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, verse 6 to 8, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without dissimulation, without pretense. And no doubt there were many other things that the apostle could list. He was writing spontaneous letters here. Gifts, some of them directly, immediately supernatural, and some of them the Holy Spirit sanctifying and blessing natural gifts. But he really alludes to the real problem uh, that these Corinthians have, the first real problem in this matter, and one which we need to see as an abiding principle. The real explanation for the problem was this, that they were ignorant. There was spiritual ignorance. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. And that would have hurt when he said that, because they didn't think they were ignorant. They thought they knew everything. They were full of self-congratulation on their spiritual, we might say, their theological knowledge. Knowledge, he says, puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. And here is a warning to reformed evangelical Christians. If anyone thinks he knows a lot, he doesn't know very much. Just to read one or two Banner of Truth books or one or two evangelical press books and to read quite a lot of your Bible and hear quite a few sermons is no guarantee that any of us know very much. So that's the explanation as to what he, why he's dealing with what he's do, dealing with. Next, let's look at the examination of it. And here it is in verses 2 and 3. Ye know that you were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. 
Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So again, we say he is not saying the whole thing is satanic, but what he is saying is that this is fundamentally of God, but the way in which the gifts were being used at Corinth, there was something which was abuse, because he talks about the Gentiles being carried away, even as ye were once led by these dumb idols. In other words, something about the way the Corinthians were using their gifts was pagan. It was uncontrolled. They were just led along. There was no assessment. There was no criterion by which they were looking at the exercise of these gifts and saying, is this to the glory of God or is it for some other motive? Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, says, prove all things, hold fast to what is good. And here Paul gives them a test as to know whether or not this is a use or an abuse. In verse 3 he says, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is law but by the Holy Ghost. And what he's giving here is a crucial test for any kind of ministry or any kind of work in the church of Jesus Christ. And the crucial test is we might call a doctrinal test. Quite clearly, well, it would seem, it would possibly seem that some of these tongues that were being exercised were in fact directly satanic and were calling Jesus anathema. But this is more than just saying Jesus Christ is Lord, and therefore everything I say and do is fine. It's more than that. This is more than just what we might call a bare creedal confession. What he's giving us here in embryo is what is central to any ministry that is of God. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. In effect, it's the same truth as what is taught by John in his first letter, chapter 4. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So it's in these uh, occasions when the spiritual gifts were in exercise in Corinth, were they pointing to Jesus Christ as the Savior for sinners? Were they pointing to his work on the cross as that point at which propitiation is made for our sins? Were they pointing to him as raised from the dead? Were they pointing to him as Lord of all? That was the test. That is the test. And we can apply that with what goes on in the church today. So he examines the problem and then he gives in the next section, verses 4 to 13, the implications of what he is saying. He says, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit with all. 
For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now these are spirituals. These are spiritual gifts. The word that's used actually in the Greek is charisma, which also means grace. It implies grace that these are gifts that come from God. So as he's thinking about the use of the gifts and the, the way they were not pointing to Christ in their, as they used these gifts, he's at the same time implying and, and, uh, and emphasizing that these gifts have come from God. They're on the basis, therefore, of Christ's work. And therefore, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, he came because Christ had bought him with his own blood at Calvary. They came because of the sufferings of Christ. So that as Jesus was exalted into heaven, as he ascended into heaven, he led captivity captive, but he gave gifts to men. The gifts have come from his wounded hands and his wounded side. And so as he speaks like this, and you notice it's the word spirit that keeps coming in this passage, the same spirit the manifestation of the Spirit, faith by the same Spirit, and so on, he's emphasizing that these come from God's. They're not there to be claimed, whatever we think. They come from God's. They're not according to what people decide in the church, so-called apostles or church leaders today, deciding, well, you'll do this, you'll do that. They come from God's. It's sovereign. It's the result of the unction of God upon each of us and in our hearts. And there is a reminder that each of us can ask God to enable us to develop those gifts that he has given us. To give us new gifts. To give us a new fervency in prayer. New insights into the word of God. New winsomeness with the lost. Give us new preachers, new evangelistic workers. New missionaries, new teachers of the young, new caring ministries. It's all from God. And if you ask good things one of another, you're, even though you're evil, you don't withhold those gifts, how much more shall the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? They're gifts of the Spirit. But then that passage I've just read to you, that section I've just read to you, reminds us that there is variety and there is the dividing or distribution of these gifts. Notice how often in our King James we get that word another, to another this, to another that. Not every gift to one or two people, but distributed severally, as it says in verse 11, dividing to every man severally as he will, individually and exactly to every man. To every Christian. The word man there obviously is generic. To every Christian. 
to everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is this variety. Not everyone is doing the same thing, is having the same gift. Of course not. That would be a strange kind of body, wouldn't it? Where you have, as he make, makes clear in the second part of this chapter, where every, all the body is of one kind of organ. That would be a weird body. It's a ridiculous illustration, of course. But it makes the point well. There's variety, but also unity. Notice how he stresses that. The same spirit, the same Lord, the same God, verses 4, 5, and 6. To another faith by the same spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same spirit, and so on. The self-same spirit. God is the same giver for each one in the church. Whether there are, the gifts may be as different as chalk from cheese, but it's all come from the same God, the same Christ. And he mentions here ministries, verses 4 to 7, different administrations, different ministries, different operations. That means um, divine energy at work, different manifestations, that means ways in which God is revealing himself. But all from God and all for the glory of God. The, glo the glory of God is here shown because the exercise of these gifts is in order that every person should profit. It's not for gratification. When a preacher stands before you, it isn't for gratification. It shouldn't be. It doesn't mean to say he cannot worship Almighty God as he preaches and through his preaching. And in that sense, he's gratified. But that's the only gratification. When somebody prays in the prayer meeting, it's not because they feel good about it. It's because we're talking to our Father in heaven. And it's for edification. It's not for little me. It's for others, for the blessing of the body. Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, he gives some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, till we all come in the unity of the faith. And then speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, even the head, Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The purpose of the variety and the purpose of the unity is in order that there may be edification, building up in Christ, blessing in Christ, not confusion, not self-satisfaction, not parade of a gift, but edification. Not parade of scholarship. Not parade of musical ability. Not parade of the ability to string biblical phrases together in public prayer. But edification, which may come very simply and very sweetly from the simplest and smallest member, we might say. Now, what Paul is saying here is, was very radical for its day because the culture of the time was split into all kinds of factions. 
social divisions, slaves and free men, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor. It was an utterly divided situation. It was kept together by Rome's military ability, and there were other things that helped, like a common language, but basically, socially, it was a very, very divided society, just as ours is increasingly becoming. And so the diversity and the unity, the diversity within the unity and the unity within the diversity just highlighted the glory of the church. Where else could you get Jew and Gentile together glorifying God and edifying one another through their spiritual gifts? Where else could you get Jew and Gentile, poor men, rich men, slaves, free men together, sitting together at a common meal called the Lord's Supper? It's the glory of the church, which is the glory of Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is your church is not a club for tongues speaking. It's not a club for any particular type of gift. It's not a club for any particular age group or any particular social class or any particular gender. It is a place, a body, in which the diversity is important. And I'm not using that word in the awful way that it's used by our society today, the wicked way in which that word has been undermined and transformed. I'm not using it in that sense. No, the church, it's highlighted, the glory of the church is highlighted in its spiritual diversity. And that is why we have to be careful as brothers and sisters in Christ not to try to obliterate the differences between us. That's being cultic. And Reformed churches can become cultic in that sense. So he's saying these spiritual gifts that you have should not drive you apart from one another and make some of you feel proud possessors and others feel jealous non-possessors. But they should bring you together because it all comes fundamentally from being in Christ. So we have the explanation, the examination, the implications, and finally the foundation of this. It's being in Christ, verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. The foundation of this is to be in Christ if someone is not in Christ, if you are not in Christ, you cannot be part of this edifying within the body. You need to get into Christ. And this is what he's reminding them of. He's reminding of them of the fact that they have been brought into Christ by the same spirits. And he uses here two illustrations. And they mean effectively the same thing. They mean regeneration. Firstly, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. It's a strange metaphor, but the language is plain. The sovereign spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is here spoken of as the baptizer. And the medium into which they are baptized 
is not water, it's the body of Christ. This is not the same as water baptism. This is a different teaching. And he's saying it's true of every Christian. For because, of course, the whole passage is about every Christian. And he's saying, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. In other words, he's speaking about regeneration. That moment when we are born again through the spirit. John chapter 3, born from above when we are made new creatures in Christ. And we mustn't be frightened of this word baptize, or even the phrase, the baptism of the Spirit. We mustn't be put off by the misuse and the distortion of that phrase by some. All it means is an inundation. It's a quantitative word. And of course, within the Christian life, Perhaps the greatest moment of the quantitative outpouring of the Spirit upon us is that moment when we become living in Christ, dead before, dead in trespasses and sins, but so inundated with the Spirit that we're resurrected with Christ, we're enabled to believe on him, we're enabled to turn from our sins and repent. That is the supreme moment of inundation. But it doesn't mean to say it's the only moment. There will be other moments. Last week we were looking at Luke 24, the ascension of Christ. It was undoubtedly a baptism of the Spirit in the hearts and minds of those disciples when Jesus left them and went into heaven. They were in the temple continually praising God. It wasn't some sort of ritual thing. It was spontaneous. They were delighted at what they'd understood of Christ and of his ministry. But then there was a further, we might say, normative or pattern baptism of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But that wasn't the only occasion. We read on in the book of Acts and we read about Peter being filled with the Spirit as he speaks. It's a quantitative word, but he's speaking about that greatest moment the regeneration, the being born again. That's, and then there's another illustration that means the same thing. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. It's a thought of drinking, if you like. Uh, well, the word drink could be translated watered. We'd all been watered. One way to think of it is a very thirsty person or to think of it as a very dry ground. And the Spirit of God has so been poured that the, the aridity, the desert nature, the wilderness nature has now flourished. It's become blossoming. The ground has been hydrated. The person has drunk deeply. Again, a tremendous illustration of what it is to be born again to close with Jesus Christ. You see, what he's saying here is, is, is to be a member of the body. It's more than just a creedal test. Yes, there is that necessary doctrine, but there's spiritual life. Are you in Christ? Without this, you're not a Christian, but by the Spirit, you can be brought into Christ. And that's the great work of the Holy Spirit to do that 
as you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour.